Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. We're here talking right after the college football playoff national championship game. That's going to be the sole focus of our podcast this week. And uh, what a game it was. We ended up with a 42-25 victory by LSU that crowned the Tigers undefeated champions of the 2019 season. What did you think of this game, John? Uh, you know, it it was a lot of fun for a while, and then we kind of saw what LSU's done to pretty much everyone all year, right? Kind of assert their will and just proved that this is probably one of the the greatest college football offenses of all time, regardless of the era. You know, this was supposed to be the defense that had a shot to really do something. You know, and it looked early in the game, Brent Venables had a really good game plan. They rattled LSU, set him up with some poor field position. But when Burrow kind of figured those things out, when Steve Insminger, when Joe Brady and them started kind of figuring out what Clemson was going to be doing, it was just, they were just no match for it, you know, and no one's really been a match for that LSU offense all year with those receivers, with Burrow's just ability to put every pass perfectly. You know, you've got Terrence Marshall and all those receivers on the edge, Jamar Chase, who was virtually uncoverable. I was surprised they picked on A.J. Terrell so much because he's one of, he's probably Clemson's best cornerback. Guys looked at as a first-round pick, and they went right after him all game long, so Credit to LSU. This is a really special season. You know, we've never had a team in the last, you know, 100 years or so go 15-0, and and now we've had two years in a row with a team doing it, and LSU, certainly a deserving champion. Certainly. I, uh, it, it, it's hard to write off this LSU team as anything but an all-time great. Before the game, though, I, I, I just have to bring this up. You did not get the result you were asking for from this game, <laughs> did you, John? No, I mean, I didn't really expect it, but yeah, I, I can't say I have a whole lot of love lost for either of these teams as an Alabama fan. I've kind of, you know, LSU's always been a rival, plus you've got just honestly, not just the fact that Clemson beat Alabama last year, just I've always, I've just grown tired of Dabo's shtick, I guess, the whole little old Clemson stuff when his team's, you know, been one of the two best teams in college football over the last half decade. So that's always just grown tiresome. So I was rooting for, you know, a 0-0 final score. Uh, we get to, like, the 21st overtime. Everybody's like, all right, let's just let's just give up. No champion. Moving on. But it was pretty clear from the beginning that we were going to have a, a pretty good game. Um, Clemson really came out hot right out of the gates. And then it just seemed to me like, Zach, LSU made the adjustments on both sides of the ball. Uh, what stuck out to me, I think, the biggest thing was Trevor Lawrence maybe had the worst game I've actually seen him play. Um, he was very inaccurate, you know, on third downs. Clemson, the big big reason Clemson beat Alabama last year is Lawrence was just picking Alabama apart on third downs. Alabama would get him into third and longs, and he would hit every throw. Tonight, Clemson goes 1 of 11 on third downs, and that was a huge difference in this game, in my opinion. Um, I was very surprised to see him just off. He just didn't look right all game. A lot of throws were high off target and inaccurate and they really needed him to play you know his a game tonight to have a shot to keep up with that LSU offense and he certainly was off what do you think of his performance tonight 
You know, I wouldn't say that he was off the whole time. Those first few series, I mean, he started the game 6 of 8 for 112 yards, and he ran in that early touchdown. And then it blew up on him. For the rest of the game after that point, you're absolutely right. The LSU defense made every adjustment necessary to render him pretty much ineffective. After that 6 of 8 start, he went 12 of 29 for the rest of the game for only 122 more yards. And I think that's the turning point there. You know, if if Lawrence continues to play the way he does those first well two out of the first 3 series really, you know, they that second series he had a couple of those were his only two incompletions out of the first 3 series, but he looked great otherwise, and, you know, Clemson was really taking it to LSU. They were pinning them back, uh, you know, when they were forced to punt the ball, and it, it, it all blew up in the end. It was, you know, Clemson basically got the, the same medicine that uh, Ohio State got from them after taking that early lead and fumbling it away. You know, they... Um, and, and and it's really interesting as well to me because it's, you know, LSU played a, a good game and obviously the defense came through well enough, but, you know, they gave up nearly 400 yards. The LSU committed 11 penalties for 118 yards in this game. That's normally not going to win you a championship. And yet, here we are. LSU is the 2019 national champion and... You know, from where I'm sitting, I'm imagining that we're not going to get one of these weird split titles this year by any means. It's absolutely a unanimous decision for Ed Orgeron's team. And, you know, I I really, I think it really came down to, at the you know, it was like a, a Jekyll and Hyde for both of these quarterbacks. Because Burrow looked rattled at the beginning, you know. Venables, as you said, was really calling a great game and LSU could do very little you know that first play LSU put it over the top and and Burrow got that completion that was called back for the ineligible receiver downfield and after that it was like okay well they can't do anything and then he hits that next you know he hits that long touchdown to Jamar Chase the first one and it's like a switch flipped for the team it's like the offense finally realized, oh, yeah, we can do this. Like, we are completely capable of turning it up another notch. Um, it reminds me of the movie This Is Spinal Tap when they're sitting there with all the amplifiers. And, you know, these amps go to 11. LSU took it to 11 tonight. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a mind blower. What do you think of the running games? Because, you know, I, we, we heard the stories were going to be, you know, two of the best quarterbacks in the country against one another. Uh, Lawrence obviously faded. Um, but the running games, you know, they were almost dead level in terms of their productivity. Clemson averaged more yards per rush. Um, but in both cases, I was impressed with both quarterbacks' running ability. I, I'm kind of sitting here uh, wondering if they're going to get the Lamar Jackson treatment and uh, have people talking about them be, you know, shifting to running back for their NFL careers. Yeah, I, you know, I really think Clemson probably abandoned the running game a little too early. I think 
not just Lawrence, but obviously Travis Etienne was having some success on the ground. I think they might should have, you know, put the ball on the ground a few more times early in the game to kind of, you know, prolong some drives, keep LSU's offense on the sideline. But I think that's such a huge weapon for both of those quarterbacks because they're not guys that anyone's really game planning against because of their running ability, but you really should because they're both both such gifted runners. One of the biggest play calls of the games that came near halftime when LSU was driving, they were set up with a um, third and 10 at the 35 yard line with 14 seconds or so left in the game or 21 seconds left in the half. And they call a quarterback draw with Burrow with no timeouts. One of the gutsiest calls I've seen in this kind of championship environment where, you know, if he gets stopped short, the clock could run out. They might not have time to run the field goal unit on. You can't spike the ball on fourth down. So I thought that was one of the bigger plays of the game. And that's always just speaking to how LSU finishes have so well. We saw it against Alabama earlier in the year when they scored three touchdowns in five minutes. They did largely the same thing against Clemson here. You know, their last three drives of the half after being, you know, a bit sluggish on offense through most of the first half, they scored three consecutive touchdowns to really give themselves, you know, that 28 to 17 cushion. So just absolutely lethal. I, the biggest thing I've been impressed with with Joe Burrow, too, is just the fact that he doesn't get rattled. Yeah. You know, it was a really – it was a rough start for LSU's offense. They're not used to being kind of dominated up front and not being able to move down the field and score touchdowns at will, and they weren't able to do that early in the game. But Burrow never got flustered, and I think it goes back to the last year in um, the Fiesta Bowl when he threw that pick six against Central Florida in the first half of that game, took a – a monster hit and just from that moment on it's like something clicked in him that just changed who he was Zach have you ever seen honestly a bigger turnaround from one year to the next for a college football player because Burrow last year is the guy who was the 12th ranked passer in the SEC behind Terry Wilson of Kentucky and then comes out this year and has arguably the greatest single season uh, a quarterback's ever had in the history of college football I, I think it really speaks to the difference a coach can make. You know, the shift to Joe Brady at offensive coordinator paid huge dividends for LSU this year. And, uh, you know, the the fact that he had more comfort with his receiving core this year, uh, the fact that the plays were just impeccably called for the skill set that he had, he was set up for success in a way that he was never set up last year. And... I, I think you're right to bring up that that shot he took against UCF because until that time, LSU looked like garbage against the Knights, um, and it, it it it's like something got knocked out and, and rattled back into place for him because whatever happened with that hit, he was a completely different quarterback after that, and you know it carried through that game into this entire season. Uh, and, you know, at this point, I think it's really hard to, que- you know, anybody who's going to question that Heisman victory by him is not watching enough college football, I would say. He, yeah, this is, I, I, I'm sitting here trying to rack my brain and find a better example of a one-year turnaround. Um, what it really reminded me of is when the Oregon Ducks went from Gary Croton to Chip Kelly and Dennis Dixon just exploded. 
Um, I think that's the closest parallel I can think of, at least in in recent history. Right. I mean, the, the, a guy like Joe Burrow, though, we're, we're not even glimpsing draft boards last year. Now he's the no-brainer number one pick for the Cincinnati Bengals unless something incredible happens between now and April's draft. He's going to be the number one pick. So just an unbelievable turnaround. You have to give credit to, to Burrow for working, obviously working his ass off all offseason to, to be able to do what he does. You have to give the credit to Joe Brady. You really have to give the credit to Steve Insminger too, because everyone wants to credit Brady as the passing game coordinator. And Insminger kind of gets left in the dust and kind of forgotten about. You know, Brady won the Royals Award as the nation's top assistant. But honestly, that probably should have been split between the two because it's Insminger out there making the calls and everything like that with the offense. Brady's great. I just don't want it to be forgotten, the impact that he's had on this LSU offense as well. And uh, really good for Coach Ed Orgeron too, right? Like it's hard to not like that guy. Like he seems like such a genuinely good guy. He, you know, really seems to care about his players, a guy who, you know, people laughed at several years ago when LSU hired him as their head coach full time when they, you know, let go of Les Miles and he as the interim coach and ultimately took the tag off when really LSU at that point could have hired almost anybody they wanted to in the country. And they went with Coach O, and he's rewarded that faith ten times over now by bringing a national championship to the Bayou. You know, a Louisiana kid who was fired at Ole Miss, had the interim tag at USC a few years back, too, and didn't get the head job that he really wanted there. And you got to think USC's probably kicking themselves at this point as well, watching Orgeron capture a national title here. So really... It's hard, again, even as an Alabama fan, it's hard to not like Orgeron, hard not to be happy that that guy is, you know, a national championship winning coach. Undoubtedly. No, there are a few coaches in the country who are more affable, more genuine, more just, you know, unbridled joy that you see when they're they're coaching a game, you know, and during the awards ceremony, just the, you know, he's... He is LSU football. You know, he bleeds it through and through. It's it's really heartening to see that. Um, you know, I contrast that. I bag on Dabo Sweeney enough. Um, and I'm just the contrast between those two coaches and their attitudes toward players and their attitudes toward, you know, um, really wanting what's absolutely best for their players. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sure Dabo's great when you're actually working with him, but you hear a lot of the stuff he puts out in the press and he doesn't come off as quite nearly for player agency in the way that, that Orgeron is. And I think some of that speaks to the fact that Orgeron has had that adversity, you know, as you mentioned, he, he got his first head coaching chance and pretty much flopped at it. And, uh, you know, when the time came up again for him to step into a lead role, he excelled and, um, USC decided to go in a different direction. They were really, you know, I think it really speaks to the you know, we're kind of off tangent here, but I think that decision there really spoke to the fact that USC was too invested in trying to hold on to the Pete Carroll legacy and trying to recreate that with one of his guys. 
and they stick with Coach O, there's a very good chance that, you know, USC has not cratered out the past decade the way that they have. Obviously, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and playing the counterfactual game is always speculative. We never know what would have actually happened there. Um, you know, would boosters have warmed to, to Orgeron at USC the way that they did at, at the way they have at LSU? And given the fact that we've heard part of the reason they they decided not to maintain him and take off the interim tag was, you know, that absolutely iconic drawl of his and uh, the idea that he just wasn't, uh, he couldn't communicate to USC fans the way that he can to other fan bases is, it's ludicrous. And uh, good coaching is good coaching. And Orgeron has proved time and again um, over the past few years. And even in his stint with USC, when I think it was five and two, he went with the, with the Trojans. Um, He's a good coach and he's surrounded himself as you, you know, you mentioned with both of his offensive guys with great coaches. And then you also talk about Dave Aranda on, on the defensive side of the ball and all the position coaches. Uh, It's a stacked group and it'll be interesting to see how they continue to develop moving forward, especially because they won't have a transcendent talent like Joe Burrow next year. But as you mentioned, the year before Burrow was not Burrow. So what can, you know, Emsminger and Brady do with the next guy up? One of my favorite things about Orgeron, and I think this is what makes great coaches great is their ability to adapt from year to year, from team to team to take what they have and see what suits them best, not to force their guys to play a system that they're too stubborn to change but to see what their guys do best and adapt the system to that. And I think that's always been the mark of great coaches, always being able to be, you know, two steps ahead of your competition, seeing the changing landscape of college football and being willing to adapt. Because this isn't the kind of style that Ed Orgeron grew up on playing football. This isn't the kind of football that he necessarily wanted to play. You know, he's more of a hard-nosed coach, likes to run the ball, likes to control the clock, but he figured out, you know, that the up-tempo style was what was winning games and what was winning championships over the last several years. And, you know, he adapted to that. LSU was able to keep a a pretty good defense and finally take advantage of the just wealth of skill position talent that's come through Baton Rouge over the last 15 years or so, you know. Uh, There's been so many guys that are in the league right now that came from LSU that, you know, never got the opportunity to shine like this and this kind of offense that are probably watching these teams and just jealous about it. You know, guys like Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry in the NFL right now wishing that this would have happened, you know, seven, eight years ago when they were still um, at LSU. So that's, I think, the big thing with Orgeron is, and I think it's a big thing in any coach, is to understand that you're not infallible as a coach. You're not all-knowing. You're not going to get everything right. You know, you're maybe not always going to be the smartest guy in the room and being willing to listen to your assistants, be willing to be more of even a CEO kind of guy and to, you know, hire a good staff like he's done. He has a fantastic staff there. And I think it, you know, it speaks dividends to his ability to be adaptive as a coach. 
I completely agree with you, and I'd like to touch more on that that talent when we come back from break, but I want to hit first on what you mentioned about controlling the clock and controlling the game, because, I mean, we look at the final stats from this game, and LSU had the ball for nearly 35 minutes. You know, they enjoyed a nine-and-a-half-minute advantage in time of possession, and they did that with, you know, the exa- they didn't change the style of offense that's gotten them to where they are this year. It's just one of those things where the combination of the defense coming through and getting the ball back for them was huge. And then the fact that they can, you know, they can change gears. They, they were able to, you know, they could take it to 11, but then you saw at the, the end of the game, they have players <coughs> like Clyde Edwards Healer that are smart enough to know I'm going to get to the first down marker, and then I'm going to fall down in bounds, and we're going to continue to churn down the clock. And, you know, that's a testament as well to both the wealth of talent that they have as well as the coaching staff getting them prepared to play the right way to set themselves up for success. Yeah, absolutely. I also wonder, too, on the flip side, Dabo Sweeney choosing – on their first two possessions, and, you know, maybe it worked out for them because they pinned LSU deep and had to punt, but Clemson punted twice in plus territory at the beginning of that game, and I thought that was kind of surprising. One of them was fourth and 18, so it's kind of understandable, but from the 35, when we saw B.T. Potter, Clemson's kicker, hit a 52-yard field goal later in the game from that same spot, so I thought it was odd that they didn't trot him out at that point as well. If you're going to try a 52-yarder later, why are you scared to try a 52-yarder in the first quarter? So I thought it was odd, particularly knowing that LSU's offense can score as much as they can. They decided to punt their first two possessions in LSU territory like that. Yeah, that was really strange. Um, I'll touch on that more in just a second. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk more college football playoff national championship with you all. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've been talking about the college football playoff national championship. We're recording right after the game, so you'll be hearing this a couple of days after this recording. Um, But we're here talking immediately uh, to give you the immediate after effects of this game. And one thing we were talking about right before we went on break was just the you know, sort of the pensiveness of Dabo Sweeney's uh, game game plan. It was something where, uh, you know, they punted several times in plus territory, as you mentioned right before the break, John. And I think it's really interesting because it was a very disjointed sort of game. You know, you saw later uh, there in the third quarter when they scored the touchdown coming out of the break, they went for two right away. So it was one of those things where it's like they simultaneously were bold and then really skittish. And I thought that was a really um, sort of, as I said, disjointed and just sort of went against the grain of how Clemson usually plays football. And I I think ultimately that was one of their undoings, you know, Um not taking or not really kind of pushing as hard as they could in every one of those instances was costly in the end. Yeah, I mean, three of their nine punts in this game came in on the LSU side of the 50. And I just, 
I don't think when you're playing an offense that's as dangerous and as high-powered as LSU's, you can really afford to punt in those situations. I think you have to be aggressive. And maybe it came from, you know, not thinking Lawrence was as sharp as he could have been on some of the throws, particularly if he was throwing outside the numbers. He was more off than we've really ever seen him in that. I don't want to have any highbrow takes about Lawrence. He's a great quarterback. Sometimes you just have a bad night. It happens. So I just wonder if, though, you know, Dabo would have been more aggressive what we're looking at in this game. I think LSU was clearly the better team in this matchup, but I, I think it's, it was surprising to me that we didn't see more aggressiveness from Clemson, particularly when they had opportunities on the LSU side of the 50. Obviously, you don't want to give LSU, you know, a short field to work with, but, I mean, we've seen this LSU offense. You can pin them inside the five, and they're scoring a touchdown three or four plays later. You know, we've seen that all year long. So sometimes it doesn't matter if they're starting from their own five or if they're starting from their own 45. So I, I think more aggressiveness would have played well for Clemson. I'm not sure if it would have mattered because I think LSU could have scored even more than 42. They took their foot off the gas there at the end of the game when Edwards Elair had broke several pretty big runs and stuff like that, and Burrow was obviously still on target. So I do think the aggressiveness would have played a little, little bit better for Clemson. Yeah, for sure. It, it's one of those things where they started to get aggressive when the game was already starting to get out of hand. And, you know, when they, they did hit the the touchdown in the two-point conversion, it pulls it within 28-25. As you mentioned, if they would have gone for another long field goal earlier, even just one, um, one of those possessions, um, the kicker made his other long one. So you, assuming that it happens, you have a tie game at 28-all there. And that changes the complexion differently. You know, Ellis, you still had the lead there. But, you know, if it was tied up and they're only taking a seven-point lead instead of a a 10-point lead and then extending it to 17, you've got to think that Clemson's going to be playing differently when they get the ball back as well. Rather than chasing, they're matching. And that, you know, that mentality really does change the way that an offense plays. If if you're chasing points and, and you're you're playing from behind, it's got a completely different mentality for an offense than if you're trading punches back and forth. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, Clemson had some bad luck in the second half as well. I think it's fair to to point out that they had that screen pass in the third quarter. They set up to Travis Etienne that looked like it was going to break for a huge play. He had everyone out in front of him, but LSU linebacker Patrick Queen made just an incredible play to get over there. The only guy that really had a shot to stop him. If not, he's going to run 60-something yards, and Clemson takes the lead at that point. And then, you know, the offensive pass interference call on T. Higgins, I think, was maybe a bit ticky-tacky at that point of the game, especially. Uh, But it's probably a makeup call for another ticky-tacky pass interference call that had happened on LSU. Came in late after that – I think it was Christian Fulton jumped in to pick off a Lawrence pass, if I remember right, Um, and they called that. So it probably, you know, evens out there. I don't think the officiating was bad or anything like that, but there's two pretty big plays there in the second half that if Clemson hits, then we're talking about a whole different ballgame. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Fulton was the one that got called for that as uh, Delpit was coming over to try to pick it, and he got his legs tangled with – with the receiver on the play. And yeah, I, I, 
you know, I think for all the Pac-12 officiating crews get just absolutely blasted by media, fans, pundits, pretty much everybody. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Pac-12 officials rip on each other in the referee room, you know. Um, but they didn't call a bad game. Like, you know, people will also look at the targeting call that came, and it was really fascinating to to hear people that are paid way more than we are to talk about college football and to write about college football, you know, arguing it looked like he hit his shoulder. But when it comes down to it, if you're using your helmet, if you're leading with your helmet, it doesn't matter where the hell you hit somebody. And I think that's something that I've heard all season long is the, you know, the rules have been revised a bit and, uh, you know, they're putting more emphasis on player safety there the rule was the rule and it was called completely legitimately for the case that it was, but you're, you know, you're going to be hearing people for the next couple of weeks complaining about that. And I, I think part of it is just the fact that rules change so frequently. Um, you know, we also saw the, the blindside block that got called and, uh, you know, like last year that would have been a completely legal play. Um, this year, they called it completely by the book, and I think the Pac-12 crew is still going to get blasted for it, even though they don't necessarily deserve the the unfair scrutiny in that regard. Um, yes, 18 penalties were called in this game, and for the most part, 18 penalties deserve to be called in this game. Yeah, I was perfectly happy with the first. I thought they let the receivers and DBs kind of play a good bit on the outside and kind of hand fight without, you know, calling one or the other pass interference when in so many of those cases both guys have their hands on each other and everything. And that, to your point on the targeting call, I mean, that was 100% targeting. Uh, It was 100% the right call. I hate the fact that a player gets ejected from this kind of game due to that. So I do think at some point we'll see an overhaul on that rule to where maybe they take the basketball flagrant one, flagrant two um, thing into effect. So I imagine that's coming down the pipeline at some point because I don't love an ejection there. But by the textbook and by the rules, they 100% got that right. There was no real argument otherwise, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. And you can argue and, you know, there can be a legitimate case made that the way the rule was written is not necessarily as fair as it could be. But the way the rule was called was fair. And I think that's the distinction we need to recognize from this game. Because many people are going to say it was unfair to make that call. Um, But what they're really arguing is that the rule is unfair as it's written. And these are distinctions that kind of get lost in the shuffle often especially in the heat of the moment when fans will get worked up about what actually happened on the field. But you can't rip a ref for doing their job. I mean, I mean, you can, but you just come off looking like a a buffoon. (laughs) Absolutely. I do wonder, Zach, are we going to get the same kind of highbrow dynasty is dead takes about Clemson after one loss that we usually get when Alabama loses a game? What do you think? You know, I, I'm I'm looking at it, and I released my way too early top twenty five projections right after the game, and I think Clemson's still going to be number one heading into next season, given the the wealth of talent they have returning, given the fact that 
even though, you know, you, you said you didn't want to rip on Lawrence for one game, I've been ripping on Lawrence all year because he had a sophomore slump. Let's just accept it. He had a sophomore slump, and it showed up again in the championship game. That's not a bad thing. It doesn't make him a bad quarterback. It just means he did not play as lights out as he did as a freshman. And some of that's teams getting more 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 film on him. Some of that is... Um, his overconfidence after such a big season and trying to force things more. Um, but whatever it is, I, 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 he's still a, a sublimely talented quarterback. And with him in the fold and with the defense that Clemson can bring year after year, they're right there in the thick again. Um, whether we talk about them as a dynasty or not, you know, dynasties are hard. My Sunday morning quarterback column this week looked at dynasties across different divisions. And, um, you know, for the most part, a dynasty is a, a sort of nebulous thing. And in the college football playoff era, the fact that you can get to, you know, f what is it, five in a row now for them? And the fact is, is they're set up once again in a good position as the ACC frontrunner that could easily run the table again <laughs> and get themselves right back into the college football playoff for a sixth straight year and even get themselves back to the title game for yet another year. Um, you don't always win them. You know, their 29-game winning streak is over, but they can easily just start up a brand new one next year. So... I think we'll hear some of that ding-dong, the dynasty's dead about them, but it, it, it's premature to call it off, and at the same time, it might be premature to even call them a dynasty, especially in this era where you have several really good hegemonic teams. You know, obviously, where you're sitting, you know Alabama is still going to be right back in the fold next year. Um I'm imagining they're not going to be any lower than number three in the preseason polls for the fifth or sixth straight year, whatever it is. Um, Ohio State's going to be right back in the thick of things. That's, you know, yet another powerhouse that year over year is in the thick of it. Um, who's going to step up and take down Oklahoma in the Big 12 is always a, an interesting question. Um, other than the you know, the Pac-12 where the races are much more wide open and as a result we get this narrative about the, the conference just not being that good when in reality it's, you have a lot of decent teams beating up on each other, um, but no one team standing out as the hegemonic force in the league. Um, it, it's dangerous to call things a dynasty. And it, it can be really easily kind of brushed aside. And I wouldn't necessarily have called Clint, you know, if they'd won this game, winning three championships in four years, it's undoubted. They would have been pegged that way. Um, like those Nebraska teams of the mid nineties or, uh, you know, some of the Notre Dame teams going back to the, the forties and, um, you know, I, I think if they win three in five years, which could very easily happen next year, in the modern era, that's pretty dynastic, especially because they, they continue to at least get back to the semifinals year after year. 
Right. I, it just shows how hard it is to do that because, I mean, you talked about Nebraska in the 90s. You talked about Notre Dame back when. But, I mean, Alabama did it as well not that long. You're talking about yeah. a decade ago in 2009, 11, and 12, winning three out of four. So, I mean, it's a, it's really tough to do that. And Clemson had a shot to do just that, go back-to-back 15-0 seasons, which would have been impressive. But, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think they're probably preseason number one next year. Um, it's interesting. Because I don't know if there's a singular dominant team out there for next year. It's interesting because, you know, Clemson brings Trevor Lawrence back, and that's well and good. But they're going to be hit hard, I think, by early entrance into the draft. You're going to see guys like T. Higgins, Travis Etienne, um, several guys on the on their defense like Isaiah Simmons, A.J. Terrell. Guys like that are going to be gone from Clemson next year, and that's going to be really difficult to replace. They've obviously recruited really, really well, but, you know, even still, it's going to be difficult to replace those guys. They're also losing some coaching staff continuity with Jeff Scott heading to Tampa to take over at South Florida which is something they really haven't had to deal with under Dabo Sweeney. Uh, one of the big reasons they've been, you know, as good as they've been is because of the continuity they've been able to keep on the coaching staff. You've got Alabama next year replacing Tua Tungavailoa with either Mac Jones or incoming freshman Bryce Young. We'll probably have something to say about that quarterback battle. Also losing a lot of talent. LSU having to replace Joe Burrow. Is Miles Brennan that guy next year, or do they look at the transfer portal uh, during the game tonight, Derek King announced that he was going to be entering the portal and you know weighing his options after initially saying he was going to stay at Houston. So he's going to be a huge domino, right? If he if he's a guy that ends up going to Baton Rouge to play for LSU or maybe even out west to Eugene to play for Oregon and replace Justin Herbert, that's a guy who could swing a national title race. Definitely. Well, and, you know, as we saw that, unfold during the game i was just sent right back to the the tweet that uh that king's father sent out on september 29th right after he said he was going to be redshirting for the season he you know he came out and basically said yeah this is we're you know sometimes you have to be self-centered and we're making the best move for for our you know our son is making the best move for him and he's going to be transferring that got walked back very quickly. And, uh, you know, when somebody tells you who they are, listen. <laughs> you know, when somebody tells you what their plan is, listen. Um, and I I found it kind of funny that people, I thought the timing was odd about it. You know, hearing about it as the national championship game was going on and seeing, you know, Twitter sort of light up about a secondary um you know, football story in the middle of the title game. But I, I, I think people who have been following football the past couple of years kind of saw the idea, you know, he had to, he had to talk a good talk as the season was still going. And, you know, it'll be, what does that say about Dana Holgerson's team next year? Who knows? Um, but, what that does is it does open up, as you said, opportunities for teams with national title aspirations to pick up a ready-made dual-threat talent who can really swing um, swing things in their favor. You know, it's crazy. We got two big news items during a national championship game because not only did De'Ara King announce that he was going to be you know, entering the transfer portal, but Bruce Feldman... From the field in New Orleans reported in the fourth quarter that um, 
Nick Rolovich is leaving Hawaii to take over at Washington State. I don't know if you saw that I as did. well. So just two massive pieces of college football news coming during a national title game was pretty wild. Yeah, that was uh that one was more surprising to me. Um, I hadn't really heard Rolovich's name come up a ton in terms of, you know, possible contenders for the Washington State job. Um, at the same time, our former uh, site editor, Matthew Bartlett, did call it. So I have to really give a shout out and some props to him for that because uh, he he read the tea leaves much more clearly than a lot of people did on that. But yeah, that was another huge announcement. And it, it, it's just interesting moving forward. Is this something that's going to happen to us every year during the college football playoff national championship game where we get two or three really wild, really impactful news stories that have nothing to happen with what's actually happening on the field? See, typically it's prime news dump territory. It's, it's when a school announces, hey, we're, uh, you know, reporting 20 self-committed secondary recruiting violations. You know, something like that. Some kind of news dump that everyone will forget about because they're watching the national title game. But these are two major stories, so it's, it was a huge surprise. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, if it was Houston releasing the, the notion that Derek King was leaving, I could understand them trying to right. dump it there. But that's a story that's bigger than one school. And, um, you know, in terms of the Washington State hire, Rolovich leaving Hawaii and going to Washington State, that's a positive growth, you know. It, 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 it's a step up for him. And so you got to assume people are talking about that as well. And, it, you know, at the same time, I wonder if this game was closer at the point, um, if they would have dumped it yet. You know, if, if, if this game, as I said, is, you know... 28 all going into the fourth quarter do we hear these stories come out versus versus seeing lsu sort of starting to put the boot on the necks of uh of clemson yeah i'm I'm happy for rolovich we're both pretty big rolovich guys yeah you know good for him making that step up it would take a lot for me to leave my job in hawaii though i gotta say (laughs) yeah you know (laughs) i imagine that's a tough place to leave at the same time, he'll be making more money at Washington State in a place with a much lower cost of living than living on the island. So, you Very know, true. give and take. You, you have to live in Pullman, but your paycheck goes a lot further. So, on that note, guys, we're going to uh, take one final break, and we'll be back to, to wrap up the rest of our college football playoff national championship talk. Stay tuned. Welcome back for the last segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking college football playoff national championship right after the game concluded with LSU's 42-25 win over Clemson. Um, we've been talking, we were talking about some of the the ancillary stories that were were dumped on the country in the middle of the the fourth quarter of this game. Uh, Derek King transferring, Nick Rolovich going to Washington State. Um, but I want to turn back to the game itself for a second. Um, one thing that really, you know, we talked about it right at the end of the first segment, some of the talent that LSU has, and they've always had a lot of talent, you know, especially skill position players. And I think 
the way this game transpired really allowed them to shine. Uh, you know, obviously Joe Burrow gets a lot of the accolades, but Bolitnikov winner Jim R. Chase obviously deserves a lot of props for his nine-catch, 221-yard, two-touchdown performance receiving against Clemson. Um, this is a team that has so many weapons in that passing game. It's something where if you double cover one of those receivers, Burrow's going to find the open guy and, and torch you. Um, you know, we saw in the semifinal uh, against Oklahoma, it was Justin Jefferson that stood out with four touchdown catches in the first half. Um, he obviously had a good game as well. Didn't catch any touchdown passes, but he had he had nine receptions for 106 yards. Um, that uh, Terrence Marshall Jr., who was another big name in in the semifinal game, he had three catches for 46 yards and a score. But Thaddeus Moss as well. Randy Moss's kid really stood out at tight end in this game, catching two touchdown passes. Uh, hauling in five balls, um, and I think he um, he was one of those pleasant stars in this game uh, that I think, you know, Thaddeus Moss, he's a junior this year. I'd be surprised to see him go in the NFL draft just because he was one of those, you know, silent stars ahead of this breakout performance, but what kind of a weapon is that for whoever ends up quarterbacking this team next year? You know, he had four catches for 99 yards and a touchdown against Oklahoma as well. And uh, it, it's funny to think about how he came on so strong here at the end of the season. I honestly think he's probably going to go pro just because he's an older junior. He's a fourth-year junior after, you know, he actually started his career at NC State. Um, so transferring to LSU obviously worked out for him, but they're definitely still going to have a lot of talent. Jamar Chase is a true sophomore, so he's back. Uh, Terrence Marshall as well. They'll probably lose Moss and Justin Jefferson, I imagine, will test the draft waters. You know, maybe Moss could use an extra year, but it's kind of a weak tight end class this year, so I think that'll help. And I think my favorite part of the game, though, is seeing how, like, elated Randy Moss was in the stands watching um, his son catched those two touchdown passes when I was a kid. Randy Moss was my favorite football player. I know you probably don't feel the same way because of what he did to the Packers several times, but I loved Randy Moss as a kid. I don't know if anything's made me feel older than watching his son play college football, but, you know, it was. I had a great time watching him have a great time. Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with Randy Moss. As somebody who loves smaller schools, what he did at Marshall is just indelibly, indelibly imprinted on my brain for the rest of my life. Um, both when they were still at the one double A level and when he when they moved up to to the MAC, he was just absolutely astounding um, and proved that he he could play at any level. Obviously, not as big a fan of him when he was with the Vikings, but you know I recognize you hate the most talented on your, your rivals. So props to him. I, I I'll give that to him. He totally earned, earned my hatred because he was good enough to earn my hatred. Uh, so, but I'm with you, uh, you know, it, it's always, you know, we talked about it also earlier this year with Antoine Winfield jr. Uh, you know, seeing some of these guys that, 
you know, you grew up watching their dads play, it's always really interesting. And, you know, the passage of time waits for no man. So, welcome to the club. You're now officially old, John. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, a great national title game, I think, um, capped off a great season of college football, the 150th year of college football. What did you think, I guess, real quick, what did you think of the, the top 11 college football players that were announced? Did you Did you like that? I was kind of irritated i guess by the fact that no players from the last like 20 years of college football were included in that it seems kind of ridiculous to think that we haven't seen one of the best college football players in the last two decades yeah i kind of thought it you you know was the top 11 running backs in such of the 80s and before so um I don't want to knock any of the players that they named on the list obviously every one of those 11 players is an all-time great um and when every you know at the beginning of this season I put together the top 150 moments in the 150 years of college football for uh fan-sided for the parent site and uh everything's subjective and everything's going to get scrutinized and everybody's going to find something wrong with a list that somebody else put together. Um, I could totally pick apart that, that list all night long. Um, I don't think anybody wants to hear me go off too much, but I can't get too worked up about it, honestly, um, because I recognize that there is no one right answer to it. I'm with you, though. I would have loved to have at least seen one or two guys from the, you know, past quarter century on there. Um, because we... Ha- That's the thing, is the way sport marches across time is players inevitably get stronger, they get faster, they get more nuanced, you know, as as new iterations of the playbook get written the wealth of knowledge that players have, they're more cerebral now than they were in the past. You have to think about more while you're on the field, which means you have to get the muscle memory so that you're not thinking anymore on the field. It takes a lot. It's a reason why you hear college football players are working way more than that 20 hours a week the NCAA tries to feed us that they are. Um, you know, it's why studies have shown 50, 60 hours a week are more than norm in, in some kind of football-related activity with these guys. So, you know, I think about, you know, somebody like Adrian Peterson. I think about somebody like Tim Tebow, obviously. Um, Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush, for sure. Uh, you know, um and I'm sure they were kind of hesitant to put Bush on the list based around something that had absolutely nothing to do with what he did on the football field. Um, but that is what it is. Uh, I would have loved to see those names. My top 11 would have looked nothing like that. I haven't really given it much thought, so maybe we'll talk about that in next week's podcast um, after I've had a little bit more time to sit down with it. But... You know, I I think it was it, it was a glorious gimmick for them. It's pretty much what it was. It was a glorious little gimmick to cap the 150th anniversary in a way that threw it more back to the history than anything else. 
I get a kick out of thinking about guys from that era trying to contend with guys in this era. And I know it's not fair to cross eras in that way, but like imagining Dick Buckus, for instance, trying to tackle a guy like Adrian Peterson, like you mentioned, or Derrick Henry uh, from Alabama running downhill on him. I think if he ever had to do that, he would have probably found a different profession. You know, the one I was thinking about when I saw that list, I saw Roger Staubach right there in it. And I was just envisioning Jadavian Clowney coming through the line and blasting him when I saw that. I was like, he would not have been able to move out of the way of that. There's no chance. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, you think about things like that. You have guys like a Clowney. You have guys like an Indomitian Sioux. You, you know, I think even about guys like Kayvon Thibodeau right now at Oregon and how much he stood out as a freshman this year. And imagine what's going to happen in the next couple of years as he develops further. Um, there's a lot of good stars out there. And I, I think it's foolhardy to have neglected them completely. But it, it's their list. It's not mine. I, I'm never going to agree completely with any list that anybody else puts out. So, glorious gimmick. <laughs> Very true. But I think it was it was fun. You know, it oh, yeah. stirs up conversation. And then you get, you know, the game. And I think it was just a great 150th year of college football. Right? I, I mean, it was just a, a great year all around for the sport. You know, you had a truly epic playoff in terms of the teams that were there, at least the top three. You know, we were gifted with the – a classic Fiesta Bowl with Clemson and Ohio State. And then, you know, this game wasn't a down-to-the-wire contest, but it also was never really boring. So that's really all you can really hope for in a national title game. And, you know, hats off to LSU at the end of the day. They proved to be the best team this season. And, you know, we both, at certain point, different points of the season, doubted LSU, um, and they proved us both foolish. So there we go. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the only thing that could have made the 2019 season even better would have been if it looked like the 2007 season. Just absolute, utter chaos. But I'm a big fan of chaos, so... Uh, yeah. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Maybe we'll get it for 2020. Before we go, I have to pose a completely ludicrous but completely lovely question for you. Um, So a couple of days before this national championship game, we saw North Dakota State win their eighth national title in nine years under three different head coaches. Uh, You know, you mentioned the idea of uh, Clemson sort of being written off as a dynasty at this point um, and, and the fact that people are going to do that. The thing that stuck for me while I was watching this game is I wonder if either of these teams could hang with the Bison. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, North Dakota State, if we're talking about dynasties in football, probably has the most preeminent dynasty of all time. If you just ignore the levels of football with the fact that they've won eight out of nine, is that right, in the FCS level, regardless of... You know, the coach, and they've obviously produced talent like Carson Wentz, uh, Easton Stick, guys like that that have come from there. Uh, but no, no, no chance, I don't think, just from a talent level, um, that they would have much of a shot in this kind of a game against one of, either one of these opponents. Of course, I put that out there very pithily. Right. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, Easton Stick, Carson Wentz, Trey Lance as a true freshman didn't throw a single interception all season long. 
obviously he's playing against a level of competition that's not nearly what you get at the FBS level, but let's be honest, like, that's a ridiculous stat at any level to not throw a single interception as a true freshman and run the table as a 15 and 0 national champion or a 16 and 0 national champion because they play one more game than they do, you know, than a Clemson or an LSU did. So, you know, I I think at the very least the kind of uh dynasty that they've put together in Fargo eclipses anything we saw earlier in college football history with those long dynastic runs of the old Yale Bulldogs teams in the 1880s or the point-a-minute Michigan teams under fielding Yost in the early 1900s. Obviously a completely different era, but the fact is that they've done this in a completely different, much more modern era where they've also had to go through multiple teams in a playoff format to get there. And, you know, the one time that they didn't get to the championship game and win it, they lost in the semifinals. So even then, you know, really crazy run all around. Um, and yeah, I threw I, I throw that out there, you know, as something of a joke. Obviously, I don't think anybody's going to to say that North Dakota State knocks off LSU or Clemson. Maybe Clemson the way they played tonight, maybe not. Um, but at the same time, North Dakota State has an, a ridiculously impeccable record against FBS teams. So I'd love to see it if nothing else. Yeah, the FBS coaches who are still out here scheduling North Dakota State should be fired automatically for stupidity because that's not there's no team I'd rather play less in a non-conference game than probably have to play North Dakota State because there's just no, you know, even if you win, you don't really win because you won't get credit for it or anything like that anyway. But the most impressive thing of North Dakota State's streak is, like you said, the fact that they've done it with three different head coaches. You know what I mean? They've, they've transcended it. So anyone who was hoping that, you know, Chris Kleeman leaving and – Easton Sick moving on, that that was going to be the end? Obviously not, because Trey Lance is the real deal, and the fact that he was able to do what he could do as a freshman, I mean, we're about to see another ridiculous run for North Dakota State, it does appear. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. Um, So congratulations to both LSU and North Dakota State as the Division I national champions for 2019. Um, Can't resist saying that as the guy who writes about small schools. But uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to see one of those games. And at the same time, as a Ducks fan, I'm really dreading the Bison coming to Autzen Stadium to begin 2020. Uh, I, I have every fear in the world about how that game is going to go because I've seen what North Dakota State does to FBS teams when they get their chance. Yeah, well, good luck to you on that. You know, at least they get the Buckeyes the next week, so. (laughs) You know, a a little bit of a breather after playing, you know, the national (laughs) champs, so. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's a rough start, so. Well, and we'll see what happens. You know, if they have Derek King, who knows? Yeah, the, the flip side of that is you go 2-0 and in those games, and then you're probably, you know, the front runner for the national championship at that point. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else that's really sticking out from the, you know, 
either these championship games or the rest of the 2019 season as we wrap up year 150, John? I, I don't. I just really enjoyed this season. I really enjoyed um, our first full season of, of this podcast, being able to, to talk to you um, whenever night of the week we record this and talk about the games and stuff like that. It's been a joy, Zach, as always. So really enjoyed it all year. Uh, we had a great year with just phenomenal performances across the board from so many talented players. And, you know, they make it so fun for us to be able to sit here and have these conversations. So I appreciate you. I appreciate uh, being able to do this with you every week. It's always a pleasure, John. I'm glad we get to revive our, you know, the old tailgater spirit of our old columns from a decade past. Um, and for all of you out there listening, I, I'm, I just need to second that. It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to all of you um, and to hear what I have um, from all of you on Twitter and, uh, you know, other ways that you've gotten in contact um, for those of you listening out there, I look forward to continue talking about football moving forward because uh, while college football falls asleep into its long eight-month slumber uh, of this long doldrum of the offseason, we're not going anywhere. We'll be with you here every Wednesday to talk football week after week as we get into final signings as we get into draft talk, as we get into spring practices, um, and then get into our summer previews. We'll be here with you most every week. We might take a break here or there, but we'll warn you well in advance. And uh, thanks for tuning in. You know, um, get, getting to talk with, with you, John, it, it'd be a pleasure if we just called each other, you know, once a week and talked to each other. But the fact that we get to share these conversations with, with all the listeners out there is also such a pleasure. Yeah, no, absolutely. If this podcast wasn't a thing, we would probably be doing that anyway. So the fact that we can record it and people listen to it's even better. And uh, yeah, so thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, we'll be back once again next Wednesday to talk more college football with you. Um, and as you know, if you've been listening since the beginning, since we started in the spring, um, We'll be able to get into some more, you know, um, esoteric topics, some more, um, you know, just uh, theoreticals, all sorts of things like that. So if there's anything you want to hear us talk about as well um, over the next eight months, uh, be sure to hit us up on Twitter. Um, uh, reach out however you want because we 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 totally are here to talk um you know, not just with each other and not just for each other, but we're here to to really break down anything that's of interest to you all. So thanks everybody who has reached out. I look forward to continue talking with you guys each week. And uh, until we're back again next Wednesday, I hope you had a wonderful 2019 season. And now's the time for you to start settling in and having eternal hope for 2020 as uh you you anticipate nothing but good things for your favorite team until we're back again have a wonderful rest of your week uh from the saturday blitz podcast this is zach bagalke here with john mitchell have a wonderful week <laughs>